Yeah, so you asked at one point whether being a woman was an advantage or, advantage or disadvantage. I would say most times it's been an advantage because men do clean up their act around women for the most part, much more in the past than, well, no, I'd say now, than now too. But yeah, people behave better in a mixed crowd. And that's a good thing. Everybody elevates. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one -on -one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Welcome to today's show and thank you for listening. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves the DC real estate market participants through three distinct platforms. One, I advise early stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy through a strategic planning process. Two, I coach early and mid-career real estate professionals with a programmed approach and a one-on-one -on -one work sessions. And three, the podcasting that I do via this entity, Icons of DCRA Real Estate, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders, along with uh, webinars and blog posts that I also offer to the marketplace. Co-Enterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already dynamic DC area real estate community. To learn more, reach out to me at John. J-O-H-N at coenterprises.com. I look forward to hearing from you. My guest today is Wendy White. Wendy is a partner and head of the DC real estate practice for the law firm Goulston & Stores, a Boston-based uh, law firm. I've known Wendy for 35 years since I first moved to Washington in 1985, and she was a young lawyer for Shaw Pittman, a, a prominent real estate-oriented law firm at the time now part of Pillsbury. She is among the leading women real estate attorneys in Washington, D.C., and has represented many of my past podcast guests, primarily in transactional legal work. She has led the local crew, commercial real estate women group here locally, chapter, and she's also been on the board of Washington Real Estate Investment Trust, Wash REIT, in the past. She's also on the uh, board of the uh, Economic Club of Washington, D.C., among other nonprofit organizations. We talk about her growing up in Miami with five brothers, her love of horseback riding, her education at Sweetbriar, UC Irvine, and Fine Arts, and then law school back at the University of Miami. She speaks about her career with, with, with four different law firms here in Washington and her love of the relationships she has built. Her philosophy of E3, she calls, excellent 
engagement, and empathy, along with some lessons learned along the way. A very broad conversation. So without further ado, here is Wendy White. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for inviting me to do this and for being so persistent and pursuing me to do it. I have to say, I, I don't feel worthy of the attention or the effort that you put into it to get me to do it, but I, I definitely appreciate it. This pushes me way out of my comfort zone, which I need. I need to be pushed into uncomfortable experiences. I know I grow from them. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And you are the first attorney that I've interviewed for this podcast. And I waited and I waited because I really thought that you were a special person and I wanted you to be the first to do, to, to be that. So. Don, thank um, you. Very flattered by that. And hopefully you'll only go up from here. <laughs> so Wendy, tell me a little bit about uh, your role at Goulston and Stores, the current firm you're, you're with now. Sure. Well, I'm in the real estate transactions group in the DC office. Goulston is a Boston-based firm with about 200 lawyers. And roughly half of them are real estate lawyers of one sort or other. I do nuts and bolts commercial real estate transactions development, financing, acquisitions, and sales. Not so much leasing, but I have colleagues who focus on that. So if I give you a sample of what I'm doing right now, that'll give you a sense of of what I do. Just coincidentally, I'm doing two pro bono transactions for the Girl Scout Council of the Nation's Capital. They're selling a large parcel of land in Prince George's County that was donated to them about two years ago, and I represented them on acquiring that property as well. And they're also acquiring a small parcel abutting an existing camp property in Montgomery County. Then I'm working with a client on redevelopment of a school site in D.C. I'm uh, working on an acquisition and bill to suit and lease in Loudoun County, Virginia, Mm -hmm. and working on development of a senior living facility in Maryland. That's that I'd say is a pretty representative sample. Oh, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I did a lot of loan restructurings. That work has mm. put down for me of late, but I did a lot of that through through July. Well, you know, as a pandemic plays out, you may end up doing more of that into 2021 would be my guess. Uh, yes, they were all very positive experiences. The lenders were very cooperative with my clients, the borrowers. They all want to move forward together. And so they were able to work out arrangements that work for both sides. We'll get into this a little bit later. I'm going to have you ask some questions about your your perception of what the industry is going to look like uh, once we have a vaccine and whether there's going to be any changes long term. But so now I'd like to kind of dive back into history a little bit and hear a little bit about your origin story, Wendy, where you grew up and what uh, influences you had from your family and your and your and your youth. Sure. Well, I grew up in Miami. My father was a lawyer and my mother a homemaker. Although my mother did go to law school, she started law school at age 19. They were both at Yeah. So she graduated from college early and started law school. She was very, I don't know whether modest or traditional, but she never admitted that she went to law school because she was interested in law school. She said she went to law school to find a husband. And that is, in fact, what she did. So I don't know whether to trust her or not trust her in that response. But 
She did not finish law school. She married my father. They moved to Miami. You know, throughout her homemaking career, she did other things. At one point, she decided to go to nursing school and, and became a nurse for a while. So she, she, my mother was very, very bright. And did they grow up in the Florida area or where did they grow no, up? No, they both, my father grew up in Virginia. My mother was an army brat and grew up all over the world. She lived oh. in China and the Philippines and, mm-hmm. you know, she lived all over. I grew up with five brothers. Wow. I was the second in the birth order. And that situation trained me well for being a lawyer at a time when there weren't as many women lawyers as there are now. There were, growing up in my family, different rules for my brothers and me. So we were very competitive. I really, for example, wanted to be able to mow the lawn. We lived on a property that had about four acres. So we had one of those Ooh. lawnmowers with a little, those little gang mowers that dragged behind the tractor. Uh-huh. And my father always thought I would fall off the lawnmower and, <laughs> and you know, get chewed up. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, my brothers don't fall off the lawnmower. I, I won't either. So anyway, I, I wanted to mow the lawn and, and he never really would let me. I wanted to play baseball, but they didn't have leagues for girls at the time. That said, being a woman in an all-male environment was good training for me. Long so you were an athletic girl then. I was athletic. I liked doing things with my brothers and I did get to play softball with them. Although, mm-hmm. by the way, in order to be allowed to play softball them with them i had to go into the house and drag all the balls and bats and equipment <laughs> for everybody and if i did that then i could play with them and i played better with better than them than some of them but anyway i yeah i i enjoyed it i loved it with five boys uh, as your brother you had to have a thick skin i would think to to be able to withstand some of the verbal and physical maybe abuse that you got I would think from your well, your brothers I, I did but I did learn to manage them and you know I've said there were different rules for the girls and the boys in our house and those different rules benefited me in some way so uh, they could be physical with each other but they couldn't ever hit me which was good ooh. so so the rules worked in my favor sometimes Good. But that didn't mean they couldn't say things to you, though. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And and I I remember one time I used to, I kept a diary and it had one of those little locks and a little latch and everything. I was out of the house and my next younger brother, John, who was always the troublemaker, he stole my diary and he cut it open with the scissors. Ooh. And I had an entry in there. I was in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade or something. I'd gone to a party and played spin the bottle. And there was a boy I had a huge crush on, Terry Rupert. And we had, you know, kissed during Spin the Bottle. And I put in there, we kissed lip to lip in all capitals. <laughs> and funny. I got no end of teasing about that. The lip to lip repeated to me many, many times. Oh, your brothers must have really gotten you on that one. They did, <laughs> they did indeed. Funny. You said you went to a large high school. So talk about your schooling. I did. I went to uh, public schools growing up. I went to, you know, public elementary schools. And then my high school was 3,000 kids. My high school graduating class was about 1,000. So it was my high school graduating class was larger than 
the entire student body of my college. Wow. And I went to high school at a time that this really dates me, but there was forced busing. And mm-hmm. so there were riots in my high school. And I remember having lockdowns when, you know, you'd get some signal over the PA system and the teacher would go to the door and close the door and everybody would, you know, move to the back of the room. It was kind of scary. And you'd hear desks being thrown in the hallways and, you Mm -hmm. know, then there were police in the hallways to keep order and police in the parking lots. But it was a great time for, it was a great, I will say, liberalizing influence on me. And certainly influenced my politics for my life, for sure. Yeah, the late 60s were pretty interesting times. I remember I grew up in Detroit. We had the riots there in 1967. And then, you know, of course, Martin Luther King being assassinated. And King actually spoke at my high school. And I went to an all-white high school. So wow, that was pretty, pretty unique. <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet. But yeah, those times were... Definitely challenging. So then uh, what, uh, so you, you go to high school in Miami and then you go to college at Sweetbriar in, Sutton, in Central Virginia. How did that happen? Well, my mother had gone to college in Virginia. She went to Randolph-Macon Women's College, which is now uh-huh. Macon College and uh, mm-hmm. or, or Randolph College. I don't remember which. Randolph College and it's co-ed. But anyway, she really hoped that I would go to Randolph-Macon and took me there and I wasn't really interested in Randolph-Macon, but I did grow up riding. And when I saw Sweeper, which is on, you know, 4,000 acres of beautiful rolling hills, prime hunt country, and it had an incredible stables and riding facility, I was like, okay, this is where I want to go to school. <laughs> so I, I literally chose my college for the riding facility. I hardly noticed that it was a girl's school. It's called a women's college now. It was a girl's school when I went there. And, um, you know, it was a great choice. It was a really great choice for me. When I went there, when I actually started attending there, I did feel a little out of the mainstream. I wasn't used to hanging around so many girls. But what I learned there, I think I learned who I wasn't more than who I was. And that's an important lesson to learn who you are by what you don't identify. So it's a process of saying, no, I'm not that. No, I'm not that. No, I'm not that. But I developed some close friendships there. And I valued so much being in that rural environment, having grown up in Miami. I loved the riding. I loved wandering around the campus. And when I go back there, that's still what I do. So your four acre place when you grew up, do you have horses on that four-acre uh, farm? I did from time property? to time, yes. I had a horse. I had successive horses. I was never around, you know, a lot of horses at the same time. But, mm-hmm. yes, I, I did have a horse and then another horse growing up in Miami. So we were suburban Miami. And in the suburbs then, the properties were still large enough to mm-hmm. have a horse. I actually remember my next-door neighbor who had two horses, and I had one horse. We would ride our horses down the road to Burger King, tie our horses up <laughs> at a tree behind Burger King, go in and have our hamburgers and French fries and shakes. And Why didn't you just go by the drive through window with a horse? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then ride them home again. So, yeah. 
But, you know, <laughs> riding, I think, is great for girls for a lot of reasons. For girls in particular, it teaches them how to convey confidence and physical power through their entire body. So when you approach a horse, you can't look at it and say, okay, I've got this. I'm stronger than you are. I'm in control here. You've got to get on the horse, this animal that's much bigger and stronger and dumber than you are. And even when you're scared to death, death, you've got to learn to convey power and confidence through your body and say, I've got this. I am in control here. And that is a life skill that translates to negotiating, to speaking in front of a crowd of 500. It is a, an incredible life skill for girls. So, you know, both my girls ride. I encourage them. I got them riding at a very early age. I've seen movies about horse whispering. And, you know, these wild horses that this guy would walk in the the stable and the horse would all of a sudden just listen to it. (laughs) And he's able to control the horse. I mean, is there a psychology of managing horses out of curiosity in your mind? I mean, there's a psychology to managing any animal, dogs horses. I've seen some of those horse whisperer movies too. And I've been like, whoa, how did he do that? Because I've never been a horse whisperer. I've never been able to do that. But So you've been around wild horses before and and had problems trying to manage them? Well, no, I've never been around wild horses. But anytime you walk into a new group of horses, you have to sort of stop, look and listen before you dive in. And it's actually just like joining a new company, frankly, or a board or anything else. You watch, you figure out the dynamics, you figure out who bites and who kicks, who leads (laughs) and who follows, where there are alliances. So, you know, when you join a board, it's the same thing. You got to figure out who leads and who follows, where are their alliances, who bites and who kicks. So horses and humans have some similarities in your view. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm big on life lessons and translatable life skills, and I've gotten a lot of them from horses. That's fascinating. That's really good. So other than the horse experience, and it's interesting, in doing research, we Sweetbriar's website, at the top of their website with all the banner, riding is one of the banners. And I'm gambling, I'm betting that there isn't another college in the United States that has that as an option at the top of their webpage. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong, but I think you're probably right. But it's one of the things that distinguishes Sweetbriar, and you know they're they're working very hard right now in rebuilding the college because about I guess maybe five years ago the board of Sweetbriar voted to close it down. They had decided that the endowment was too small, and it it really wasn't that small. I think it was I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember ninety million dollars maybe which is small for a big university, but for a small college of 700 girls, that's not so bad. But when they voted to close it, first two things happened. First, the alumni swept in and said, no, uh-uh, not happening. And second, <laughs> all the students bailed. What are you supposed to do? Your college is not going to be there the next year. They, go, they went to other colleges. So when the alumni swept in, got rid of the board, installed a new board, took it to court and won, and everybody donated money. Everybody was writing checks. Mm-hmm. So they kept the college open. They hired a new president who was just an incredible woman. 
And they're rebuilding now. They're up to a few hundred students, but they want to be, I don't know, 1,500 or so. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly beautiful campus. And it's a very, very special learning environment where you get a great education. You have small classes, good relationships with your professors. And it's a, just a, it's a very privileged environment to learn in. And I don't mean that in the bad sense of the world. I mean, it's a really privileged place to be. You're just, it's a unique experience that you don't get many times in your life to spend four years in such an unusual environment. Although I did transfer as a junior, I transferred to UVA. I was admitted. Why? Well, because I thought this girl school just isn't for me. I thought pasture was greener on the other side. I wanted to be, you know, back in a larger environment, larger, more diverse environment. Was UVA just uh, co-ed at that point? Because it was all male school up to a point, wasn't it? I transferred into the class, the first class where they had admitted women wholesale in roughly equal numbers to men. So that class had been there for two years, but I transferred in as a junior to that class. And, you know, I took all kinds of classes that there's no way Sweetbriar could have offered. They just didn't have that big a range. Then I transferred back, having realized that Sweetbriar really was a special place and I didn't have that long <laughs> a time to be there. That's funny. And when I transferred back and I met with the head of the English department to say, okay, well, I'm, I'm an English major. And he says, well, tell me what you took while you're at UVA. I'll see if you know, you're fulfilling your requirements, Sweetbriar. And when I finished telling him, he said, oh, I see all the very she-she poets and none of the meaty potatoes. okay so you must have had a strong appreciation for poetry and and english because you went on to get your graduate degree in in fine arts aiming that direction so talk about your inspiration there yeah i liked exploring the world through literature and also analyzing the world through literature you learn very important critical writing skills when you are uh, reading and writing. Getting an MFA in creative writing was something that I didn't jump into right after college. So after college, when I graduated, I moved to Charlottesville, I had a boyfriend, and I got a job as the secretary to the dean of the UVA Law School, Monred Paulson. And he was he was rewriting his criminal law textbook, and I helped him with that. I was a good reader, a good writer. Then I decided, you know what? This is not for me. And I started applying to creative writing programs. And I got it was an endeavor. It wasn't an endeavor my parents wished to support. So I went to UC Irvine when I got a full ride there. My parents had put me through college very generously, and so I just thought I should I should support myself through this. I taught there as well. I taught as a graduate student teaching assistant. I had the opportunity to teach undergraduate courses in in English. A lot of my students were, you know, pre-med and such. So they were taking it to fulfill fulfill humanities requirements. I taught classes like From Romance to Realism and Tragic and Comic Visions. Both of those classes I think I could teach much better now, having been through several real estate recessions. But It did teach me critical thinking, really great writing skills, also presentation skills, having to prepare for classes 
every day. I thought it was a great preparation for being a lawyer. Poetry, by the way, is even a more limited, or or I should say a more specialized area of writing in that it teaches you to be very, very economical with your words. It's a very condensed way of expressing ideas and feelings. And so, you know, you have to be very economical writer as a lawyer. I take my red pen to everything that anybody gives me and associates are quite used to it. So that list of questions I sent you probably marked up pretty well then, I imagine. (laughs) Well, it was helpful to have that outline, that's for sure. You know, it's interesting, and we'll get into this a little later and more in detail, but you have this um, philosophy that I've read about, the three E's, which we'll talk about a little bit. And then I, I know your name is WW, and so... And you're into poetry. So I had to say, and this is what I'm I think my byline for you, Wendy, is you're going to be the alliterative legal lady lawyer. Uh-huh. <laughs> legal lady. <laughs> because your name, your philosophy, and your, your interest all re- relates to one of the basics of poetry, which is alliteration. So. That's so funny. Well, I've been called worse things, so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Good. Good. I thought you might get amused with that. So it's interesting. So how does law, the evolution, I mean, maybe it's because you would think about British common law, the origins of law and, and writing in, of, of legal principle comes from literature of some sort and storytelling. So I would think that poetry translates into law in some form or fashion so that, you know, when you're crafting a statute or a, a case, you're building in the thought process that comes into structure in structuring, you know, a poem or some literary document. So talk about that thought process a little bit. Well, it's not a natural segue really from poetry writing to law, but as I said, you have to be a good writer. You have to be analytical. You have to be very analytical. I mean, very economical with your, with your words and, and language. So those, skills are important in the law. And telling a story is also really important. Actually, one of the things that I enjoyed most about law school was reading case law. I mean, those are all stories, right? Every single case you read about is a story, an interesting story. And I'm big into life lessons. Well, each case draws from it the lessons that the judges make the rulings on. And then there's precedent. So um, there are definitely some natural segues. I didn't go to law school because it was a natural segue from from poetry. (laughs) Okay. I went back to Miami after I finished my MFA just to try to think about what to do next. I'd been admitted into the PhD program at UC Irvine, and I thought that would be what I would do. But, you know, I'm from a family full of lawyers, and there was some. I would say, parental pressure on me to do something Mm -hmm. more practical. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, while I'm here in Miami, I'll just apply to some law schools. So I applied and I got into University of Miami and I was there anyway. I thought, okay, fine. I'll just, I'll just go to University of Miami and I'll see what this is like. And, and next thing I knew I finished and I was looking for jobs and it was a great entree into cities that I wanted to check out. So I thought, gee, I'd like to live in Washington. You know, Fred Klein was a law classmate of mine. I know. 
Yeah, I know. I th- I would bring. I was going to bring that up later, but you did. So, <laughs> and, and Fred's a dear friend, and Fred had gone to right. Shaw Pittman. Right. So Fred was a huge influence on my decision to go to Shaw Pittman. Okay, I wondered yeah. how that happened. I figured there might be some connection there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so so he, sort of, does he ahead of you in, in law school? He was ahead of me one year. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So yeah, I I I didn't exactly follow Fred to Shaw Pittman, but Fred was a large influence in narrowing down my options and ultimately choosing Shaw Pittman. And I'm so glad I did. Fred's a wonderful person, and I'm I it was my pleasure to practice law for him with him for a few years. Well. You, Fred, and I have known each other about as long, almost. <laughs> I met you the first, almost the first week I joined, I came to Washington, the first couple of weeks. So you're kidding, John. What a great memory you have. Well, it was fall of 1985, and we were doing deals right off, right out of the shoot with uh, at the Saul Company. So I remember you and your brother from a long distance way, Graham. White (laughs) was in the midst of doing a couple of transactions when I first joined, I think, the company. So, uh, and then Fred closed my second deal that I did. It's the literally the morning my son was born, my older son. Oh, gosh. And it was his birthday, too. So, my older son and and Fred had the same birthday. So, it's just, it is funny. And he closed, and it was a deal with Mel Lincoln. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Fred has not so great things to say about that, but <laughs> it was uh, it was interesting. And he had just been at Yankee Stadium the night before for the World Series. So there was just a lot of things I remember about that day. Oh, yeah. But uh, sure. so, yeah, so I closed several other transactions with Fred over the years. But you and I, I don't think ever actually closed a deal together, but I know that we worked on some things. Coterminously. Yes, I did a lot of that Chevy Chase Bank lending work growing up as a young lawyer. In fact, I did so much of it that I thought, am I ever going to get to do anything other than loans? (laughs) (laughs) But you learn a lot through just doing loans because you learn not only about financing, but you learn about leases and, you know, non-disturbance agreements and subordination. You have to read everything as a, as a, a exactly. lawyer for, a, for representing either the borrower or the lender. Absolutely. It's, if you don't, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Yes. The other side's going to get you somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it was, a, it was a great, great training ground for me. But I do remember Shelly Wiesel sending me to Chevy Chase Bank with a pile of loan documents one time and Bob Coker. Do you remember Bob Coker? Oh, of course. Yes. I don't know where yes. he is now, but he was. He's he was retired. His, his son works for Eaton's. You're kidding. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. He's a senior, senior guy at Eaton's. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was supposed to go over and explain these documents to Bob Coker. And I mean, I read through them. I marked them up. I put the deal turns into them, but I didn't really understand them. And Bob starts asking me these questions about them, like, what does this mean and what does that mean? I mean, I didn't have a clue. It was really embarrassing, but it was it was great training. Mm-hmm. I did know enough not to fake it. I said, I don't know what that means, but I'll find out and I'll let you know. 
So did law school prepare you for working at a law firm? I would say that it didn't really prepare me for a real estate practice. Right. I think it would have prepared me better for litigation. Mm -hmm. One thing it did prepare me for is I never could finish my work in law school. I could never get it all done, could never get it all read and be completely prepared the next day. And that was how practicing law was. I mean, I could just, I had so much work. I could never, never get it all done. In law school, actually, my claim to fame probably was in my first year, I was the first person to be called on in a large section. It was in my property, my real property course, and to admit that I was unprepared. I mean, the professor called me to stand up and, you know, brief some case. And I stood up and there wasn't any way I could fake it. So I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not prepared. And it went dead quiet in there. Like, what are they going to do to me? Are they going to kill me? Is he going to throw me out of law school? What's he going to do? You could have heard a pin drop. And after that moment of silence, he just called on the next person. That was the end of it. Mm -hmm. But when I walked out of class, people were congratulating me. Wow, that was so awesome. That was really great. You were so brave. That was really good. <laughs> it was very funny. So did other people just wing it? Try to try to fake it through because no, I, I the mean, professor would blister them. I would think if they did. Yes, right. That's what happened when people tried to fake it. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, watching the movie, which is one of my all-time favorite films, <laughs> with Professor Kingsfield. Oh, the Paper Chase. I don't know if you ever yes. Made, saw. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, that was a good one. It makes you feel like law school was hell. So. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but a lot of people have told me. So, for instance, I just interviewed Mike Bush in my last episode of formerly of Giant Food. Sure. And he was he attended Harvard Law School. So he said that he did not like law school at all. He said he would, he regrets going. He would have rather been in the business school. Did he go straight through? He did. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think it made a huge difference that I'd been out of college for four years when I went to law school. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as life or death for me. Saying mm -hmm. I wasn't prepared, I didn't think this was going to be the end of the world. I enjoyed law school. Like I said, I enjoyed reading all the stories. I was on a in a softball league there. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I made relationships there that I mm -hmm. still have to this day. And it was an interesting learning experience. Now, I will say that, you know, I have two daughters. They're 29, about to be 30, and I discouraged them from going to law school. They both went to business school. Mm -hmm. Now, one of them who went to business school is applying to law school. And she said, you know, I always wanted to. <laughs> right. She said, I always wanted to go to law school, but you steered me away from it. So, of course, I'm to blame. But anyway, I'm like, look, you want to go to law school, go to law school. So, well, it's interesting. You said you enjoyed it, yet you steered your daughters away from it. So it's interesting you say that. Why? I mean, well, if they have think, an interest. Yeah, I think most law, good law schools, the, the, you know, the highly ranked law schools, the kids get very competitive. I don't think they necessarily understand what they're competing for. They compete to go to the biggest, most prestigious law firms. And those law firms are brutal. I mean, it's just a very tough place, I think. Not that business isn't also tough, but the law firms, 
you know, a lot of them, they chew up kids and spit them out. And yeah, kids don't care about changing careers every year or two now, like they used to when I was coming through, but it just seems like a really tough profession now, tougher than it was when I started, when Fred started. Interesting. So Shelley Wiesel was a big influence on you? Yeah, I kind of grew up under Shelley. Shelley mm-hmm. is a such an excellent lawyer, a good writer, a good negotiator. He keeps things in perspective, keeps focused on what's important, and yet remains very detail-oriented. I remember one time when I filled out or filled out, I marked up a whole package of of loan documents for him. And at that time, we were using those computers that spit out those long papers that accordion pleaded, you know, and they had the little holes on the sides. And what were those called? Terminals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) I didn't understand that you could search globally for terms. I've gone through these documents word for word and marked up every single thing, every where the you know borrower's name appeared, I got it right. All the signature blocks, on and on. Same with the lender, and and the set that I'd started with, the forms I started with were from another bank. So on the title page of this whole pile of loan documents, which was all of the loan documents, not just a note or a deed of trust, it was everything. On the title page, which listed all the loan documents, I missed the name of the bank. I left the name of the prior bank. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yes. (laughs) And that title page does not go to the client, but it did go to Shelly Wiesel. Yeah. And Shelly caught that mistake. And he was so upset with me. He didn't, he didn't, it's like when he gets upset, he didn't yell or anything. He just said, you missed this. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I missed it. I'll be more careful next time. Well, in my annual review, which I had shortly thereafter, Shelley said that I'd made a bad mistake in loan doc, a set of loan documents, and he would never work with me again because he couldn't trust my work. Mm. So I kind of had to work my way back into Shelley's good graces. But I did because I was determined to. I admired him so much. I thought so highly of him that I really wanted to work under Shelley and I wanted to learn from him. Mm-hmm. So I did worked with Shelly for many, many years, and he became one of my greatest, you know, supporters and defenders and mentors and sponsors and all those words now that you use that you didn't sure. think. Yeah. Sure. So, and by the way, even more importantly, Shelly set me up on a blind date with my husband. Oh. We celebrated our I didn't know that. wedding anniversary a few days oh, ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he introduced you to your husband. He did. Wow. Indeed. My That's husband, Paul, was very special. good friends with Mindy, Shelley's wife. Oh, isn't that something? So before you were at Goulston and Shelley was there, he invited me to a Christmas party. I don't know. It's about eight, 10 years ago or something like that. And I got to meet his wife and, and kind of reacquainted when I was uh, in the borrowing realm at that time when I was uh, with a, a development company. I hadn't really talked to him for a long, long time because I really hadn't worked with, you know, in in that framework with him. But it was good to catch up. Good person. So in addition to Fred, there was Jay and and Jeff Keitelman, too. At least those are the two guys that I knew that were kind of your cohorts at Shaw Pittman. Were there others uh, there that people that you worked with? 
oh, a lot. You know, Jay was senior, and then I think Fred was probably next. I was next. And Jeff was really kind of a baby lawyer for a while. I mean, I remember Jeff when he was a summer associate. His career has just been phenomenal, and he's doing such a great job. And I run into him from time to time, various places. I've never been adverse to Jeff, interestingly. I have been adverse to Fred and DLA, of course. Never to Jay, because Jay's practice is primarily leasing, and mine is right. everything but. But yeah, and planning and Debbie Spartan, who are both right, I remember fabulous you. leasing lawyers. I've mm-hmm. kept up with them. Diane, Diane Shapiro-Richer, who's at Posanelli, I've also kept with her up with her, and Diane's a, a great friend. Right. So yeah, it was a really, really good group, and it has seeded a lot of great real estate groups around the city. Yeah. I mean, that was quite a class when I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was, quite a, a, group. It was, a, it was a good place to learn to be a real estate lawyer, and I just lucked into it because of Fred Klein. Thank you, Fred. It was a great place to grow up great teachers. And I feel like I learned a lot there, not just about practicing the the craft or the technique or the whatever of real estate, but also about principles and values and what's important. So, mm-hmm. so then Pillsbury came and swooped in and there was a merger. Talk about that and what happened at that point and why everybody kind of fractured and left at that moment. Yeah, well, you know, Jay and Jeff and Fred had left before that, I think. They went to Rednick and Wolf, so I remember yes. at the time. Mm-hmm. I know Jay aspired to being, you know, the head of the firm or whatever. And Pillsbury was a much bigger animal. And Chapit, or yeah, Shaw Pittman was not the dominant player in that merger, hence the name Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. So Pillsbury Madison and Sutro had years before merged with Winthrop Stimson in New York. And then mm-hmm. that merged firm later merged with Shaw Pittman. Actually, I liked it. It presented great opportunities for me. So in the merged firm, I sat on the managing board for five years, which I really enjoyed. I led the DC real estate practice, which mm-hmm. at the time was about 40 lawyers. It was a big real estate group. And I liked that. So it presented opportunities to me, and I liked the people very much. I thought the practices in California and in D.C. were very similar. The New York practice was a little different. The personalities were a little bigger, but nevertheless, the the practices merged well, and we all got along pretty well. I mean, the firm's still together, right? That's good, although they have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk both the firm and in particular, the real estate group. So my next step, of course, was when I left to join Morris Manning. And why did I make that move? Well, I made that move because I could see that Pillsbury's emphasis was not going to be real estate. And I had the privilege of growing up in a firm whose focus and emphasis was real estate. I, I liked that and I wanted that. Morris Manning was a firm with a profile much like Goulson's actually, about 200 lawyers, about half of them real estate lawyers, and they wanted a DC real estate group. They had a woman managing partner. I had always thought if I left Shaw Pittman or Pillsbury, I would go start my own law firm and I would have a 
a women's law firm. Not all women, but you know, women partners. I'd have a women's law firm where there was great opportunity for women, and and mm-hmm. uh, women would lead the firm. So I thought that starting the DC practice, real estate practice of a woman-led real estate focused law firm was a great way to do that. I had the security net of a larger firm, but I got to pick my people. I got to build a group. And that's what I did. I mean, within a year, I'd grown from zero to 10. And that's hard. I took a partner from DLA. I took a partner from Hogan. So we had three women partners and a bunch of associates. I drew two associates from Pillsbury. It was, Did you have any men on the team or not? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the two associates that I got, one, mm-hmm. uh, Roberto Garcia, was from Pillsbury, and Ben Caden came from another law mm-hmm. firm in town. I don't remember which one. They were both tremendous, really wonderful, and they actually followed me to Morris Man- to um, Goulson and Stores. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a good experience in, in building a group. Ultimately, I left that firm. I didn't fit. I didn't think that it was a good geographic footprint for my clients or a good cultural fit for me. And I wanted to be at a firm that was a better fit both for my clients and for me, where I could finish my career, transition my clients to other lawyers, and where I felt I really shared values with the firm, which I I I feel very much with Goulston. Well, talk a little bit about that culture. And you were interviewed recently, and you have this philosophy that I referred to earlier, your E3, your 3E philosophy of excellence, engagement, and empathy. Talk a little bit about that and why it's come out at at Goldston and Stores. Sure. My kids went to an elementary school that had life rules for the kids. They were respect, responsibility, honesty, and kindness. And every time any kid misbehaved, they would pull them aside and they would say, okay, was that respectful? Was it responsible? Was it honest? Was it kind? And almost every bad behavior fell short in some way on at least one and usually more than one of those life rules. And I loved those life rules. And I thought, you know, maybe I should come up with my own. What are what are my own? What is important to me? Mm-hmm. And So I came up with my E3, and P3, of course, was very big practice at the time. And I thought, well, I I like E3. Excellence. Excellence in work product is really important to me. Excellence in, you know, my colleagues, their intellect, their, the way they practice law, that's really, really important to me. So excellence. Engagement. I feel like you have to be engaged in order to, connect and to to do well so you can't just be excellent at your work unless you're engaging with your clients engaging with your community engaging with your family with industry groups whatever you have to be engaged and being engaged is a lot more satisfying than the opposite than not being engaged and finally empathy i don't think you can be effectively engaged if you can't be empathetic and understand the people that you're engaging with. This applies to clients, to organizations, to your fellow lawyers, to associates who are working for you, to your partners. You have to understand where they're coming from, what's important to them, 
in order to be effective at, at what you're doing. So E3, I think it fits most circumstances. I use it as my yardstick. And that's, you know, one of the things about, I love about Goulston. I think it's very excellent, engaged, and empathetic. Within the first few weeks I was at Goulston, I experienced a little happening there that I, I'd never seen in a law firm before. A former partner had died, and they always announce when a former partner's former partner's spouse or whatever has has died, or anybody in the firm, some important member of their family has died. And after a few hours, someone wrote an email to the entire firm saying what it had been like to work with this person. And then another person chimed in, and another and another. And by the end of the day, you know, a dozen, two dozen people had told these wonderful stories about their experiences with this man. And it became very clear that he was both loved and revered and feared. He was really an old school lawyer. You walked into his office and you were fearful, but you learned so much from him. And the regard that all these people had for each other became so clear through reading that email exchange. At the end of the day, I sent an email to the whole firm, which I've probably done less than five times since then, saying how moved I'd been by reading all these emails and that it was really clear to me that I joined the right firm because of the... Even after not even meeting the person, you never had met this person and you said that. That's... I'd never met him. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it takes me. courage to write that, actually, about somebody you've never met, you know? Yeah, I was, I was deeply moved by all the emails I'd read, and it so endorsed my decision to move to Goulston. Mm-hmm. It was a culture that I appreciated, and I was really so grateful to be there. And the quality work is fantastic. The lawyers mm-hmm. are fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about law itself real estate law and why you thrive doing it. From land use to transactions, to disputes, to counseling, it has a universal, it's a universal part of our business. Many lawyers shift into the business side as they see their clients succeed in business transactions for financial reasons, usually. Often the complaints I hear about some lawyers is that they sometimes cross over into making business decisions or offer business advice. Have you encountered this among your colleagues? And have you seen that in your experience, uh, Wendy? I think lawyers are, by their nature, very conservative and reserved, probably higher than a representative sample of population are introverts. And business people, on the other hand, I think are much more extroverted, far less risk-averse, more, I, I should say, center stage personalities. And for most good lawyers, I think they shouldn't, I mean, they aren't and shouldn't be center stage. They're supporting cast. A lawyer who needs to be center stage, and there are plenty of them, you know, they just get in the way of getting things done. You, you need to play a supporting role and- Or they litigate. Or, or they, they litigate. litigate. Right, right, right. right. So I, I, <laughs> yeah, I actually started out in litigation and I thought, because that's what you learn in law school and I actually enjoyed moot court. So I thought, you know, I'll be a litigator. But what I found in big firm litigation, John, was that it was all about 
avoiding the substance of the issue. It was about moving things to a different court or dismissing it on this technicality. It's in the wrong forum. It's, you know, you didn't name the right parties. Just get out of court. And my nature is to really want to get to the heart of the matter, to get to the substance of the transaction. And when I started doing real estate litigation and talking to some of the transactional lawyers about the matter, I kind of realized that what they did was more suited to my personality than litigation, or at least large firm litigation. So I gravitated over to real estate transactions and I've never looked back. Mm-hmm. I like it. I mean, real estate transactional lawyers are problem solvers. The best mm-hmm. ones are. They not only identify issues and problems, but they're creative and they work collegially to find solutions. And I can name, you know, great ones for you. I love some of the lenders lawyers I've worked with, Elizabeth Lee at Wamba Carlisle and Chris sure. at McGuire Woods. They're very smart. They're good lawyers. They identify issues. They raise issues but they work with you to find solutions to the problems. And that's what you want to do for your clients. You want to get to the solution quickly Mm -hmm. and economically. Sure. So making in your mind, what sets apart an outstanding lawyer from another, from an also ran attorney? What characteristics do you look for? I mean, your three E's are important, obviously, but other more specific things to law would you consider important? Well, being problem solvers, like I said, mm-hmm. being being problem solver, being collegial across the table, being quote adverse doesn't mean you're enemies. You need to work no. together mm-hmm. to get deals done. Your clients don't want you to fight with lawyers on the other side. They want you to to get deals done. So collegiality is really important. And I think enlisting your opposing counsel at the outset of any transaction and the goal of, you know, making your respective clients look good and and getting the deal done efficiently is really a good way to start keeping your eye on the big stuff. And actually it's another reason I like transactions over litigation litigation. You're looking for these little things where you can avoid ever having to discuss the real issue transactions. You want to, find the real most important issues and get both sides together on that. Make sure both sides get what they need on the big stuff. And then, you know, you can trade off on the little stuff. Negotiation is a key element in both real estate law and business. What tactics have you learned in quality negotiations? How has this set you apart from others in your career? I don't know that anything's set me apart. I think, um, you know, everybody has their own way of doing things and some people are so skilled at it. I don't think I'm so skilled at negotiation, but I do try very hard to be collegial with opposing counsel and to find what we have in common and to find to identify common goals and to work towards those. Now, that's not to say that negotiation doesn't often become very contentious. I did actually use the F word in one negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, emotion but does you know play what? into it. It was effective. It got everybody's attention. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the most effective negotiators are the ones who can work 
well to achieve a common goal for the clients. The clients want to get together. They want to get married. They want to run off into the sunset together. It's not like litigation where when it's they open, want to close. They want to close. Yeah. yeah. So you're argu- arguably one of the leading female attorneys in Washington in real estate. Talk about being the only woman in a room full of big ego male real estate clients and other attorneys. How did you hold your own? Hold your hold your own and earn your their respect. Well, what value, first, thank what, you. And I think the key word you use there is arguably one of the leading female. I'd say that's very arguable. There are lots of really great women lawyers around town, and I would feel myself flattered and fortunate to be in their league. I mean, what what prepared me for that? Certainly being raised with five brothers, it was a familiar environment to me. Oh, I'll tell you one story. This is back in the day when when women lawyers were not as common. So I was representing oh. real estate. This was in the early 90s. So this was during the, the, the recession then? Yes, it was. It was. And in fact, the deal was for Crescent Real Estate to buy a portfolio of office buildings and a hotel called Greenway Plaza. It still exists in Houston. Mm-hmm, from sure. The developer, the developer still held title, but actually it was pretty much owned and run by the lenders, which mm-hmm. were insurance companies, life companies. So, and my client at Crescent Real Estate, which was a REIT, it's a client of Shaw Pittman, was a humongous man, a former Dallas Cowboy lineman who wore this big old Super Bowl ring. And he was kind of a big lumbering guy with a <laughs> deep Alabama accent. Uh-huh. And we walked in. A good old boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when he told me the deal that we were buying these, this real estate, we're buying a portfolio of, you know, six office building and a hotel. I'm like, okay, great. I know how to do that. I didn't, but I thought it's just like one, only you multiply by six and add a hotel. I've done all those things. I can put it together. A lot more to it than that, but live and learn. Anyway, I got the contract the day before I flew to Houston to this first all-hands meeting. And the contract was drafted as the purchase of a company as opposed to real estate assets. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole different game. You surprise, know, surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was not ready to take on all the liabilities of this company. And by the way, there was not one representation and warranty in the contract. Not even that they were duly formed, validly existing, and Ooh. you know, duly authorized to do the deal. It was really quite the contract. And so we walk into this large conference room. There were probably 30 you know, white guys with white shirts and red or blue ties and dark suits. Their their lawyer was a guy named Uriel Dutton. He was infamous, smart. He had been the managing partner of Fulbright and Jaworski. He was a senior oh, lawyer there. Oh, very, oh. very smart. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was so flabbergasted. I just, that I'd had this contract just put in my hands the day before and and I sat down and I said, well, I think, you know, there's some misunderstanding here. And 
let's just start from that. My client thinks it's buying real estate and this seems to be a contract for the purchase of a company. And by the way, we might need a few representations and warranties in here. And, and Uriel Dutton says to me, first of all, it's quiet. Then he says, well, Miss Wendy, we just ain't going to be doing that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So it was a very challenging start. But, uh, you know, it took weeks and weeks and weeks and we got it done. And it was, you know, one of the best transactions Crescent Real Estate ever did. It was you know, a couple million square feet of space and not a lot of money. And they sold it for about 10 times what they bought it. Oh, and it was, wow. yeah. So, yeah, so it was great. It's funny that you're setting the stage there reminded me of, I don't know if you've ever read the book by Tom Wolf called A Man in Full. Oh, yes. And so there's a scene in that book where it's a workout. And the developer comes in with all his pretty girl marketing ladies and the banks sitting there with their, their attorneys and the businessmen. And these guys are, these guys are sharks. They're tough. <laughs> and he goes in there and he gets blistered by them. Uh, this was a uh, negotiation on their, you know, on renegotiation of the loan. I should go back and very good book. But good you know, scene. actually, I do recall that some of the characters in that book were based on the seller in my in a deal that I worked on for Crescent in Atlanta. Really? Yes. Because yeah, well, that's where point, the setting was. Yeah. Yeah. At one point I was they were going to buy Perimeter Center, which was also a portfolio of office buildings. That deal did not go forward. They were buying it from MetLife. And so MetLife had taken it back. But the original developer sponsor in the deal was there at the table. And mm -hmm. some of those people that I met were in that book. So Interesting. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm asking now that you were, you were in a negotiation that was for something that you didn't expect. Have you been in workout negotiations where you were on one side or another and some things came out of left field that you didn't expect? in the discussions, just out of curiosity, because that often in workouts is where things like that happen. You know, a bank will come up with something or a borrower will come up with something. What, where, where did that come from? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't remember any moments like that, Don, in actual business meetings. I remember a lot of kind of off the wall things coming out of the dinner that followed the all-day meetings. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just remember one situation that I'll just share. I was with a client. We were meeting with a bank. I think it was uh, First National or something like that. And he was negotiating a single property deal. And all of a sudden, he had a relationship with the other properties. They, said they brought all of his existing loans to the, to the table. And he was current on all these other deals. And the bank said, well, we want you to pay off both of these other loans. Oh, my God. If you want this. Yeah. So <laughs> they changed the whole deal on him. So he asked for the consent. Oh, well, if you want that, well, then you're going to pay us off right now. 
back then in that era, this was early 90s, the banks were looking for liquidity. Yes. So they were doing whatever they could to come to ask, you know, borrowers to, to make good. So one other podcast guest of mine, Steve Lusgarden, had that happen to him, Blake, where they were very liquid as a company. And they would have lenders coming to them, begging them to pay them off just to get them liquidity. So it was wow. kind of an upside down scenario. Yes. <laughs> the bank is coming to the borrower for money. <laughs> In essence, it was it was a strange situation. Yeah. Yeah. Unusual situations. So since you've you lead a local practice, you might have the luxury of choosing your client base and perhaps turning down some business that you decide isn't worth the aggregate aggravation. How do you discern your clients and how do you guide your colleagues in this process? <laughs> well, I, I guess I aspire to having the luxury of turning down business. I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely not there today. And especially during the pandemic when things have been slower for sure. And, you know, actually one of the things I love about Goulston is that they take clients large and small, matters large and small. They're a very values-driven firm. I like that flexibility and the values-driven yardstick that I have. I've never had, you know, a sleazebag client come to me, frankly, and say, will you do this for me? I've never had anybody ask me to do anything dishonest. I've never lied for a client. I've never been asked to lie for a client. And I never would lie for a client. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, I I confess everything or I lay everything down on the table. I mean, there there is discretion. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, no, I, I can't say that I've turned down a lot of clients. I will tell you, as I said at the beginning, I fired one client. I, I fired her because she was extremely abusive to my associates. She was just horrible. She was always fine with me, very respectful and and nice, but associates would come to me and tell me how she had screamed at them and called them names. And I'm like, oh, I really can't have that. And I was on the phone with her and she was at the hairdresser and I could hear her screaming at her hairdresser. She would scream, oh, that hurt, stop it. You know, and she was just being really mean. And I said to her, you know what? Let's call her Jane. You know what, Jane? I'm not sure that I'm the perfect lawyer for you on this matter. I think maybe you would be better off with another lawyer. And my friendship is with you is very important to me. And I would like to maintain that friendship. That's more important to me than the client relationship. So let me help you find a lawyer that's really perfect for you on this transaction. And let's just be friends. <laughs> so that was how, Interesting. I, how I fired her. Interesting. But, yeah, and I've had some interesting smaller clients during the pandemic. One person who wanted to buy a farm in Maryland, which was kind of fun, and another client who is doing a sale of a residential property that she inherited at Georgetown, and she's doing it in a reverse-like kind of exchange with the house she wants to buy in the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. And Sure. You know, those are not transactions that, would have been favorably viewed at no. uh, Pillsbury or at any big law firm. Right. But Goulston, you know, you have the flexibility to represent 
clients on all kinds of matters. And I appreciate that. I imagine across the table from you, though, occasionally you've had adverse relationship, adverse situations where you look across the table, boy, I'm glad I'm not representing him or her, <laughs> I'm guessing, once or twice. Yeah. And I mean, I'm so, I've sometimes had to, you know, train my clients, frankly, about what is appropriate demeanor or behavior <laughs> around around me as a a woman lawyer or around anybody, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk, we talk about all the diversity training we do now. I mean, it was much more elementary when I was coming up through the law firm. Yes. The way we've been doing business in the last few years is a whole lot different than what the way business was done when I first started back in the late 70s and early 80s. Deals done in closed conference rooms with smoking, you know, guys smoking. And- oh, yeah. And oh, the yeah. language that was used and the and the references to women and all kinds yes. of things. <laughs> Old different philosophy. Yeah, so you asked at one point whether being a woman was an advantage or, advantage or disadvantage. I would say most times it's been an advantage because men do clean up their act around women for the most part. Mm-hmm. Much more in the past than than well, no, I'd say now than now too. But yeah, people behave better in a mixed crowd. And that's a good thing. Everybody elevates. So you like to mentor young attorneys, I assume, since you lead a group of men and women at your at your practice now. What advice do you give to your mentees? I mean, how do you how do you mentor other young people? Yes, I do like to work with young people and it's very important to develop our next generation of lawyers and business professionals. I mean, succession is as important in law firms as in companies. What advice do I give? Make relationships because they serve you well, both personally and professionally throughout your career and your life. Relationships make life much more satisfying, right? Mm -hmm. And there are some women who've been really great leaders and role models in that regard. I don't know if you know Linda Rabbit. Boy, she'd be a great interview for you, John. You ought to interview mm-hmm. Linda Rabbit. She and Janet Davis started a group called, they called Fine Down Society. And they started it because they had found that whenever they went out to dinner with clients, the men would reach for the wine list and order these really, really expensive wines. And then Linda, as the you know, the person trying to get the client, the construction company, she'd end up picking up the bill. So she and Janet decided they were going to learn about wines and they were going to develop <laughs> a network of, of women real estate professionals who knew about wine. So they started Wine Down Society. It's a group of about 16 women. It's been going on for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. I don't know. I haven't, I wasn't in it at the beginning, but I've been around for probably 20. And it's a great group of women. I'm sure you know many of them. And the are they all in the real estate profession in some form or fashion? They're all real estate professionals, but mm-hmm. in different segments. So, mm-hmm. you know, Diane Hoskins, who we we're talking about earlier. Oh, sure. Jody McLean, who I know you interviewed. Oh, yeah, sure. It's a great group. There are a few lawyers and planning. Tanya Castro. Mm-hmm. There are a number of brokers. Sherry Cushman and Sharon Oliver and Kathy Del Coco and Debbie Ratner Salzberg is, is part of the group. Sure. 
No so more. it's really, it's a wonderful, wonderful group. And we have four dinners a year. We each kind of pay a membership fee, I guess you'd call it, that just goes to paying a really good chef who prepares meals for us at, uh, it's usually Linda's house, or it used to be at Janet's house, Becky Owen, she could host, she had, you have to have a big table to seat that many people, right? Mm -hmm. We meet four times a year, and the holiday dinner in December, we go around the table and we talk about what we have done to help either each other or other women in the industry during the past year. And it kind of keeps us focused on that. It reminds us what we're about and why. And inevitably, the women around the table will help each other, whether it's actually referring deals or whether it is calling for some education on a topic that you don't know that much about, but it's really a terrific group. So relationships are really important and it's an important piece of advice to give young professionals at an early age. Are there any minorities in the group? Uh, well, Diane Hoskins. Of course, um, yes. Sadvi Supermanian. Oh, I know Sadvi. Yeah, yeah Sadvi's wonderful. She's great. She's, I tried to get her to, her bank wouldn't let her interview. Oh, really? No, Capital One wouldn't let her, let her do it. Yeah, well, so she came from, she came from Chevy Chase Bank. Mm -hmm. She worked under Eric Lawrence. And yep. Sadvi is somebody that I, kind of took under my wing, gravitated to very early when I met her mm -hmm. and kind of got her involved in crew and said, Savi, you're going to be the president of crew someday. Mm -hmm. And she had just joined and she was a young person at Chevy Chase Bank. She's like, oh, no, no, I can never do. I said, yes, you're going to be president. This is how it's going to happen. You're going to join this committee and then you're going to be the head of this committee and then you're going to this and you're going to. So, yeah, I mean, that's what she did. She became president of crew. and. It has nothing to do with me except that I planted the seed in her head. It's her own abilities and leadership drive. She's really terrific. And now she's, you know what, head of commercial real estate banking at Capital One for the region. Right. Goes up to Boston. Yep. She's terrific. And she's a very recent member of our of our little wind down society. Well, she and I have been active at ULI for quite some time together on several functions. So yes. uh, certainly on the advisory board, et cetera. So I've gotten to know her pretty well and wanted to have her. We were all set. She was eager to do it. And then her legal department said, uh -uh, we're not going to let, you know, it was more yeah, of a public relation. Savi would be a great interview. Yeah. She's just I so poised and lovely. I was ready. I was almost, I had done as much work with for, on her interview as I have done with yours. And we were days away from doing it. And she she called me, said, John, I'm sorry. I just can't do it, unfortunately. So that's only, that's the third time I've had somebody say that for where, where they are employed. It's kind of pulled the rug out on them. And it's a little disappointing, but yeah, sure. it is what it is. Yeah, so without disclosing any secrets, here are some stories of your favorite, not so favorite experiences and any lessons you've learned from them. Well, I told you about my Greenway Plaza story. Yes. Which uh, is definitely one of my favorites. I will say that also during that whole experience, it's when I came to learn that you can even grow tired of a Ritz Carlton in a Four Seasons. <laughs> 
we would stay in those back and forth between those hotel, uh, two hotels in Houston all the time. And Tim Watkins, who was a partner of mine at uh-huh. is now a partner of mine at Goulston, he, I enlisted Tim to work with me in the transaction and he and I were great partners. And after we'd had a sort of long day of negotiating, we would go to the restaurant bar area of the Ritz Carlton in Houston. And it was, there was nobody there because it was, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. And we would then debrief and look through our notes from the meetings and decide what was up for the next day and just kind of plan. And there was one day when we were actually working on documents there. So we really had our heads down over the, over our little bar table and we went for hours. So we actually didn't notice that the bar was kind of filling up around us and it got a little noisier and we just started talking louder to compensate for the noisy background. And finally, when we're nearing the end of what we had to do, we looked up and there's a band and people are dancing and it's like a whole scene. And I looked at Tim and I'm like, well, you want to dance? (laughs) So Tim and I ended our day that day dancing on the dance floor of the bar in the Ritz Carlton. Funny. Trying to think of other stories, John. I mean, most of my law practice is not that colorful, I'll say, or that interesting. I remember the first time I met Jody McLean, I had flown down to Houston. I was working on a deal for some client selling a shopping center. Yeah, I remember now. And I, yeah, was selling the um, retail part of City Vista, which is a fifth and K in DC. Of course. And it was developed as a very complex development that I did. You know, I've had three podcast episodes now talking about that project with oh, from various angles. Project. One was Jody. One yeah. was Mike, Mike Balaban. Yeah. Uh, and the other was Joe Carroll, who yeah. was the project manager there. <laughs> yeah. So Mike was my client. Actually, Mark Dubik was more the lead right. on it at the time. Joe came later. Yep. But we sold the retail portion to Edens. And our partner in the deal, CIM, Lowe's partner, CIM, Charlie. Was rep- I'm sorry, Charlie, Charlie Garner, Garner, right? Yeah. Was represented by uh, Wendy Fields and Rory Malik at Catton. So you had a lot. They're both very also. I mean, look, I'm a very detail-oriented lawyer. They are as well. So all three of us flew down to South Carolina for this negotiation. They are represented, Eden, by a transactional lawyer in Charles. What's where are they from? Columbia. Columbia, yeah. I assume his billing rate is a lot lower than ours in DC region. And he would send you a memo of comments on the purchase agreement that was longer than the purchase agreement. And <laughs> there were there were no comments that were more important than others. They were all of equal importance. So you had to work through every single one. It was very tedious. So it got incredibly expensive for our client and not nearly as expensive for Edens. It's a great tactic, I have to say. Now, this guy's a really bright, smart lawyer, and I doubt that this was his tactic, but it's certainly his modus operandi. It's the way he does things. 
And we had finally whittled it down to, I don't know, four issues or something. And Jody came into the room to help resolve the four issues. And it was so interesting to see her as the business person step in at the last second to resolve the big issues. She had great command of the room and the issues and the you know, business considerations on both sides. And, you know, Jody, one of the things I admire most about Jody is that she really does have life rules. Life her her company is mission driven. She's very community oriented. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So every business issue she deals with is fit into that framework or that yardstick of how do I resolve this issue to best fit this mission these values that I have. So it was very interesting to watch. I I very much enjoyed watching her in that interaction. Didn't become friends with her until years later when she when she moved to DC. You know, you telling that story about Jody makes me think that maybe we need to do another episode and just go down my list of guests and the people that you know and just talk about them because um, I'm sure you'd have mostly probably 90% good things to say about them, but it would be interesting to get your perspective on all the guests that I've had, because I think you've represented a third, if not more of them, of the people that I've interviewed. So, uh, Oh, and John, you know, I'd love the opportunity to say all that 5% bad stuff. (laughs) I would never say the bad stuff. But, you know, one of the things that I love about our real estate industry in this area is that it's, you know, mostly really good folks. They're principled. They're nice. I haven't dealt with the bad apples. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So Ray Ritchie said the same thing. And Ray said that, you know, Washington is a very collegial place. And when I close a deal or I lose a deal to somebody else, I usually write them a note and say, sorry about this. I mean, congratulations, you won and on to the next deal and we'll do something else some, someday down the road. He said he does business in Los Angeles and, and has done work in New York. And he said, those cities are completely different. <laughs> he said it's a chainsaw death match. It's the, way, the language he uses among parties yeah. in those cities. Well, Ray is the perfect example of just a quality guy, good through and through. He is all about honesty, integrity, fair dealing. In my experiences working with Ray, he always leaves something on the table. He's a tough negotiator, but he's fair. And he wants everybody to leave the table feeling good about the deal. He's Mm -hmm. terrific. Right well, that's his broker back. He's a broker. That's yes. where he, he learned that then. Yes. And he actually did something really nice for me. So I had my twins in 1990, as you pointed out, right at the beginning of a real estate recession. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to work, my firm really didn't need me, frankly. They wanted to push me off into the bankruptcy group or the environmental group or something. And I wanted to do real estate. And Ray had an in-house lawyer at the time, Deborah Moses, who we all loved. Unfortunately, Deborah passed away from uh, breast cancer years later. 
but she was out on maternity leave just as I was coming back. And Ray said, you know what? Why don't you come sit in Deborah's seat and be Deborah? We need an in-house counsel while she's out. And so for the first five months when I came back to work, I was in-house at Boston Properties. Really? And I loved it. I learned so much. You know, people walk down the hall and ask you their problem du jour. And it can be just a little thing. And it was stuff that I didn't necessarily know anything about. But because you're the lawyer, they think you're going to know the answers. Mm -hmm. And you figure out the answers. And you counsel. And it's just great. I really, I love that experience. And I... I'm very indebted to Ray for for providing that opportunity to me. Did you think about ever doing in-house counsel for a, law, uh, a, a large development firm at one point, other than leaving a law firm and doing that? Is that something you'd consider? You know, I thought about that path at, at various points in my career. I love the flexibility of being a law firm lawyer. I mean, you have multiple clients. You know, you can choose to work on this versus that. You're not beholden to one client, one boss. So that was one of the neg- on the negative side of the list. On the positive side of the list, I think you get a broader variety of work. I'm sure I could get a broader variety of work if I tried at a law firm, but I've chosen to, you know, narrow my focus. The other thing is that at some point, in your law firm growth and seniority, you kind of get above the compensation level that is offered to lawyers in-house at the same level of seniority. Now, Mm -hmm. once you get even more senior and you're working for a big company or public company, then, then you're paid the big bucks. But at the levels at which I was looking it wouldn't have worked for me. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, just, it wouldn't have worked for me. I'm the primary income provider in, in my family and it just wouldn't have worked for me. Sure. So talk a little bit about the real estate markets right now. And I wanted to put it in the framework of, of being a lawyer in Washington, DC. Law firms dominate the large tenant usage of downtown office space in DC have historically and you know some other large users used to be there like the you know i guess some of the accounting firms and so they're just not as prevalent anymore so it's dominated by law firms lobbyists and uh, associations typically are the largest tenants in the city and with the pandemic a lot of people are working at home <laughs> so and they say you wonder Will the demand for space continue to be strong from a lo- assuming that you had decisions to make for your firm? And I don't know how much space you have, but let's assume you have 100,000 square feet or something like that. Would you be optimistic about renewing your lease at the same level? I mean, what, what's your thought on that? And, and then broaden it from your client's perspectives. What would you recommend them do, they do, and thinking about investing in more office space in downtown Washington. Yeah, these are decisions that law firms are certainly making now and companies as well. I'm, I'm not sure whether we'll need less space or more space, to be honest, more space to spread out or less space because less people come and use it. And I don't think 
that we are ever going back to the way we used to work. Mm-hmm. I think our work environment is going to be a hybrid of what it used to be and, and what it is now. Now, very few people are going into the office. I haven't been to the office since March, and I've worked quite effectively from home, expect to continue working quite effectively from home. But I still think that being together in an office can't be duplicated. It's very hard to, to create that environment through Zoom calls and teleconferences. It's important to be with your colleagues, to be able to walk down the hall. I felt very sorry for, for the young lawyers and young professionals starting out in this environment where everything's virtual because it's hard to, you know, it's like almost an indoctrination when, you, when you're working in, in a firm in an office space together with people and you go to lunch with them and you see them in the morning and you see them late at night and you work on teams, you just don't get that same feel when you're all working remotely. And it's, it's have you, have you hired anyone yet that you've not met? Not in the DC office. We've definitely hired people in Boston and New York that have started since the pandemic, but not in DC, just coincidentally. But there are several uh, what were first-year associates, I guess they're now second-year associates, and it's been really tough for them because it's just hard. It's People don't know them, don't know their work. We try to do all kinds of things to bring people together. We have you know, office virtual lunches, Zoom meetings, and sure. you know, we have yoga, we have this, we have that, but it's just hard. It's hard to get a sense of the culture and the people. And I think people will use less space because that's a way to save money. I think people Mm -hmm. will take less space and will downsize. And I think that will work because a lot of people will work remotely at least part of the week. They won't go into the office every day. Right. Right. But I don't think we will have any more or much more of this, you know, hoteling concept where you share a desk. No, I agree. So there'll be more, you know, rigid office setups, glass or walls more or whatever. Smaller offices or walls. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. the architects have come up with such incredibly interesting, creative plans for managing the space needs in this, you know, pandemic or post-pandemic environment. I've seen some presentations that I've really been impressed by. I'm going to ask uh, Diane Hoskins to talk a little bit more about that in the uh, in the upcoming webinar. Well, hers her is one of the present hers is one of the presentations that I saw that was just incredibly impressive. And get her to show you some of the plans that she showed to our little wind down group because they were really creative and impressive and workable. Jo- yeah, jockeying five speakers in an hour and a half is going to be an interesting challenge for me. But uh, oh, we'll yeah. see how that works. Oh yeah, <laughs> especially those five. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see. So, did you ever get involved in investing with your clients at all of your own money or doing investments? Like, for instance, were you ever asked by your, do you would you like to come in this deal with us, Wendy? Uh, would you would you be a partner? Would you be a limited partner in the deal or something well, like that? Did you ever? Short, there's a short answer to this question, John. The answer is no. There are conflicts issues. Firms, firms usually restrict or even prohibit investment with clients. I've never done it. Have I invested in real estate? Yes, I've invested in some real estate, but never with clients. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Or even a situation where you were, uh, one of your colleagues said, Wendy, would you come in this syndicate for one of my clients, even though and there's no conflict with you would have, even then you wouldn't get involved because it might be a firm client, firm issue then, is that it? Correct. Got it. Got it. Okay. You've been very active in the community, including board memberships, real estate organizations, leadership and volunteer activities. Do you participate in this to keep yourself visible for legal work? Or do you do it to find personal satisfaction in contributing or both? I do it because I enjoy it. I do it for both. I think initially, my first industry organization was Crew. Mm-hmm. And a woman named Geraldine Pilzer, who worked at Charles E. Smith in-house, I was at a closing with her. I was representing, I don't remember who, and she was, re- maybe I was representing Chevy Chase Bank. I don't know. She was representing a borrower, Charles E. Smith. And, you know, I think John Engel sent me to the closing with all these documents. I didn't know what a closing was. I'd never been to one. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do there. Geraldine <laughs> was so nice. She walked me through the whole thing. She was president of crew at the time. And she says, Wendy, you should join crew. I was like, well, what's that? You know, so she took me to a few crew meetings and then I joined and I really liked it. And, you know, the relationships you could build there, the fact that there were people all up and down the seniority spectrum and, and across industries, I could learn a lot. So I liked it. But then I got involved in other organizations and assumed different leadership roles because they were growth opportunities, just like you're pushing me to do this podcast, John, it's out of my comfort zone. A lot of that was out of my comfort zone, but it was a learning opportunity. And I realized I can't just stay in my little introverted comfort zone. You know, I was on Washington Real Estate Investment Trust Board for a while, and I happened mm-hmm. into that. Ed Cronin, who I'm sure you know, was a sometimes client of Marty Crawls, not very often, only when Aaron Fox was conflicted out of doing work for them. And I made it my business to try to get Washington Real Estate Investment Trust as a client. And I saw Ed from time to time. I'd have lunch with him or breakfast or dinner or drinks or whatever. Always learned a lot from Ed. He's a great storyteller. Talk about You know, he he started the Saul Company. I don't know if you knew that. Did you know that he started at BF Saul? He's told me that story. I knew he started there. I don't think he started it. No, he started, uh, he was uh, George May's boss, who was Pete Selwood's boss. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, he was back in the 1960s. Yes. So he worked directly with Frank II. Yes, I knew that. I knew that. But Mm -hmm. anyway, at some point along the way, Ed said, look, do you want to be on Ritz board? Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I don't want to be on Ritz board. I want to represent you. And he says, that's not <laughs> happening. So do you want to be on our board? And I said, okay, I'll be on your board. So, so it really did happen like that. I then, of course, went through the regular process of interviewing with other board members and got onto the board. I understand they were looking for diversity. They had had one woman on the mm-hmm. board. Um, I was the next woman. and. It was an incredible growth experience for me. I loved that experience. I didn't realize how much learning there was for me there. You're at a totally opposite end of the strategy deal spectrum sitting on a board because you're 
you're focusing on strategy for the company and who's the CEO and who's the next CEO and mm-hmm. what deals you, you know, approve deals over, so what deals is the company, what kind of deals is the company going to do? Right. And when you're a lawyer, all that's been decided way before you get involved. And then you get the deal and you execute on it and get it done. So I really enjoyed being at that opposite end of the strategy spectrum. And then I enjoyed sitting on, you know, audit committee and comp committee. And Mm -hmm. I chaired nominating corporate governance for five years. And I loved learning about how do board members measure and grade their performance annually. And how do you bring on new board members? How do you look at what skills you need and what skills you're going to need? How do you think about succession planning? All that stuff was incredibly educational for me. And I liked it so much. I came off Ritz board when I moved to Goulston because Goulston represented Washington Real Estate Investment Trust on, mm-hmm. by the way, when I was there, they called it RIT. They quit calling right. it RIT when. Wash Reed. Yeah, they call it Wash Reed now. And when mm-hmm. um, Paul McDermott took over CEO, he didn't right. like RIT. That's all fine. I I developed, I, I transitioned to the new lingo, but sometimes talking about the old days, I go back to the lingo. Did you ever so, meet Frank Kahn? No. That predated me. So when right. I came on, Ed was the chairman right. and CEO. And then after him, it was Skip McKenzie. And after Skip, it was Paul. Right, right. So, so was Sarah Gr- uh, Groot Watson, was she still there? Was she there then? Sarah was no longer there, but I knew Sarah when she was there. And Sarah remains a very good friend. Mm-hmm. I actually had a Zoom catch-up call with, with Sarah this past weekend. Sarah is, you know, she sits on four boards. She's now. very smart. She's so smart. She's married to the retired CEO of a net lease REIT, Realty Income Trust, who's a very, very nice man. And, you know, Sarah is wonderful. Sarah was really, really smart. Sarah and Ed uh, were very close. Ed was a great mentor to Sarah. But Sarah had moved on by the time I joined Wash mm-hmm. Reed's board. Interesting. So that's the only board you've served on. And of course, you've led, you led crew at one point, and you've been involved with ULI as well, I think. And I have been involved with ULI, not as deeply as with crew or even, you know, economic club. I sit on that board and, and love it, love the broad industry relationships there and people I meet, the introductions, the, I, I think I can, and, and the speakers they get are just incredible. And David yeah. Rubenstein has so embraced he's, his role as president. And he's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. So here's actually a story about David. You know, when David left the Carter administration, he came to Shaw Pittman as a partner. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I met David back then. In fact, I were, I was a first year associate and my father, who really wanted me to be, to be a success as a young lawyer at Chuck Pittman, he hired the firm to do a little bit of lobbying for him. He owned a piece of property on the Outer Banks, the barrier islands of North Carolina, South Carolina. And at the time, the, the federal government was threatening to withdraw the federal flood insurance subsidy 
from coastal regions and it would have made this property worthless because it would have been undevelopable. If you couldn't get the federal flood insurance subsidy, this property could not be developed. So my father hired David to, you know, write a paper about this and take it to Capitol Hill and peddle it among his contacts there. So David, trying to involve me, since the client was my father, brought his piece of work to me to look at after he'd written it. And it was about, you know, a 30-page piece of persuasive writing. And what did I know about it? Nothing. What was my career up to then? I was an English teacher. I was a writer. So what did I do that? I marked it up. I took to it. I corrected all the little grammar and punctuation errors and I fixed dangling modifiers. And um, I gave it back to David and he looked at me like, are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> so that was my introduction to David. I didn't work with him again after that, but he didn't stay at the firm very long. He went off and started Carlisle. And yeah. Then, and then I've now worked with him on, on the economic club board for, you know, 10 years. And David's just wonderful. And Do you remind him of that story every once in a while? <laughs> no, I've never, I've, never, I've never reminded David of that story. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I love watching his interviews on PBS. They're great. He says he gets the best. I mean, he had... Jeff Bezos, I guess, at the Economic Club. I mean, that's pretty impressive. He's had very, very impressive guests. And I've told David that I think he's such an effective interviewer because he acts, he asks questions like a girl. <laughs> and by that, okay. he, he gyrates between the personal and professional. You know, I think men tend to stay more on kind of a professional level. And David jumps from, you know, a question about running a company to a question about how would you feel to Bill Gates? How would you feel if your son dropped out of college like you did, you know, just back and forth seamlessly like that. And it's just very, very effective. It makes the interviews personal and interesting, educational at the same time. So, yeah, I think Dave is an incredibly effective interviewer. Obviously, I'm not the only one who thinks that now that he's doing these on Bloomberg and other places as well. He's just terrific. Based on what I'm doing now, I enjoy listening to people like him doing it. It's, uh, he's a craftsman at it. And it's great. I bet you do, John. I bet you do. You're not, fun. Bad yourself. You're not so bad I'm, yourself. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. A number of so, your podcasts, and they're great. Thank you. Do you advocate for an ESG sensitivity on your clients' projects? So, you know, in environmental, social, and government governance? I advocate for that in building teams whenever and wherever I can. Mm -hmm. Clients are pretty sensitive to those issues these days. And also, the law mandates it in DC in many cases. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to do a lot of advocacy in many cases. And in a lot of cases, I don't have opportunity to do that advocacy. But as I've said, I'm all about, you know, women supporting women. And whenever I can build a team comprised of lots of different women, that's what I want to do. That's great. So obviously you're championing 
you know, what needs to be done. It's interesting you said about David Rubenstein, he interviews like a woman. So you obviously sense that there is a difference between men and women in our industry. And this is a topic I've gotten into with every female guest I've had. And it's interesting to get different perspectives on it. Have you seen it in the law practice as well, where women lawyers are different than men lawyers in the way they look at things? I don't know that I would divide that by gender. I think that our industry is still very male-dominated on the business side, much more than in law, just because people are more comfortable with sameness. And unfortunately, sameness doesn't lead to the best decision-making. But once pointed out to people, most of them get it. And the men who get it the fastest and the best are the men who have daughters, adult daughters. Interesting. It's also in the minority sector, too. No question. In our industry. We're, you know, real estate is near the bottom and balance in that. Yeah. (laughs) So... You have to be very, very intentional about it. I mean, because right. it, because people are more comfortable with sameness, you have to be very intentional and say, I'm going to do this and then do mm-hmm. it. I admire Chelsea Rao, who now is the chair of women, the Women's Leadership Initiative of ULIDC. She was very intentional in building her steering committee this year. And it's pretty darn diverse. I she did just such a great job bringing on diverse women. So she she did a great job. You know, Linda Rabbit, when she was on, you know, she's been on a number of boards. There's one board that she was on when she was looking to looking for a new board member. And she told the headhunting firm, not just that she, I mean, a lot of people say, I want to see a diverse group of candidates. She said, I only want to see women. And so she added some women to the board. When I was on Wash Reed's board, we added an African-American man. We were very close twice to adding two other women. In the end, it didn't work out, much to my disappointment. But uh, yeah, we were, we, we were, we tried to be intentional about it. And that's what you need to do. It's a challenge in law firms too, by the way. It's an infrastructure issue. To some extent, it's just the way things are built and the thought process that's behind it. You know, I admire the idea that you had about forming a, your own ladies oriented law firm to do that, because I think women have a different perspective on things. And, uh, you know, I try to I'm trying to extract that in these interviews. What's the difference? Is it an emotional thing? Is it how does that apply to business and to, to decision making? Because it can make a difference. Yeah, I'm not sure I can enlighten you all that much on that. Although I do think that women tend to be more relationship-oriented than men. Mm -hmm. They do form relationships. And they make it part part of what they do, part of every business deal. I remember when Indra Nui spoke to Economic Club years ago. And she was, in my mind, one of the best speakers we've ever had at Economic Club. She talked about how among her senior level management team, she sent personal letters to their all of their parents at Christmas time. And she told the parents how much she appreciated what their kids 
their young adult children did at her company, how much she relied on them, what a great job they did, what they did really well. And she said she did that because once kids get out of school, the parents don't get report cards anymore and they don't know how their kids are doing. And she wanted not only for their families to know how well they were doing, but she also wanted to make that expanded family part of the PepsiCo family. Wow. And by bringing them in like that, they all had that PepsiCo loyalty and culture. And I thought that was incredible. No male leader would ever do that. It's a real family type of feeling. That's interesting. Very interesting. There are a few cultures I've seen where it's a family feeling like that. Some guys get that, but not as many as women would. I don't think I, I agree with that. I think of, you know, like Sam Walton at Walmart had kind of a family type of feeling about it. And, you know, there's certain companies that, that kind of run that way. You but, know, uh, I imagine that's correct. I don't know. I think family companies sometimes become places that feel exclusive to non-family members. And that's not a culture necessarily to aspire to or uh, for yeah. the family. I can think of one like that. that <laughs> but for Andrea on the other hand, when she's bringing in unrelated people right. to build a company as that has a family feel, I think that's really something to admire. That's great. That's special. So you've already talked a little bit about your life priorities. It sense, I sense that work is obviously very important to you and giving back. And I assume you have twin daughters, so family means a lot to you as well. How do you rank those? Do you put family first pretty much in your life? Oh, yeah. Family is first for sure. I mean, the other two I'd say are about equal. Work is very important. But again, that's relationships and those relationships are important to me. And I've built some wonderful relationships along the way through through work. Giving back is really important. It helps build and sustain communities. And that is so important. It helps to build our pipeline of people into our businesses. Giving back is very important. So I've been very involved with boys and girls clubs over the years, sitting on their board and also being a part of the youth and real estate awards event every year for since its inception, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And the Girl Scouts I got involved with as an adult, I was a Girl Scout as a kid, but when Diane Tipton was the president and Diane was a Gold Award Girl Scout and her daughter was a Gold Award Girl Scout. And Diane is a really fabulous leader. And I was so impressed when I went to her president's dinner, which is the end of the year dinner, thanking the president for everything that she's done. I was so impressed by what Girl Scouts were doing that I wanted to become more involved. And so I have, and I hope to remain involved. I love Girl Scouts for a number of reasons. One is because this is such, generally speaking, an affluent community, kids have a lot of choices in their extracurricular activities. Scouting has become a place that less affluent families participate in. It's much less expensive. And so it caters to that part of our community. It builds incredible girls, girls of, you know, 
confidence and character and they support each other. There's none of this mean girl stuff in Girl Scouts that I've seen. And I've gone to Camp CEO every year now for the past five or six years. It's a camp where women executives from the area go and spend a week or a few nights camping with girls who are juniors or seniors in high school. And you mentor them and work with them. And people from around the community, not just the real estate community, have gotten involved. And it's just wonderful. But these girls really support each other and work well together, work on projects together. They don't cut each other out. They're not exclusive. It's really great. I love that about it. Your daughters, were they Girl Scouts? They were Girl Scouts early on. They were brownies. And whenever I say they were brownies, Lydia Soto Harmon, who's the CEO of Girl Scouts here, says, don't say they were brownies. Say they were Girl Scouts. They were Girl Scouts. <laughs> but then they went off and you know did other things instead of Girl Scouting. Mm-hmm. But Girl Scouting yeah. provides incredible opportunities for these girls. And frankly, it's provided opportunity to me to do pro bono work. As I said at the very beginning of this interview, I'm doing two pro bono real estate transactions for them. It's not often as a real estate lawyer that you get to have pro bono opportunities. I mean, I don't know how to represent criminal defendants or Mm -hmm. or immigrants that, you know, ICE is trying to deport, but I know how to do real estate and the Girl Scouts have camps. They have real estate. I can do Mm -hmm. that. So scouting is great. It's it's great that the Girl Scouts are, successful in that it's unfortunate what's happened with the boy scouts it's just you know i read about that and it's it's very disappointing my my godfather was very involved with the boy scouts when when i was little i didn't do it because i was more involved in sports you know and that's yes. the com- competitive thing with, with yes. boy scouts and stuff but um, yeah it is really a shame all of my brothers were boy scouts my mother was a boy scout leader she was also a girl scout leader so scouting in my family goes way back. It is a shame. And and you don't know, it's hard to say where the slippery slope downhill started. I don't know enough about it. I will say that I wish they had stuck to their knitting of being Boy Scouts and not try to be just scout and attract girls too. Mm-hmm. And I would say the girls, Girl Scouts is the best place for girls to learn leadership. Mm-hmm. And other opportunities. Girl Scouting is geared to girls. Boy Scouting used to be geared to boys, and now they're trying to be, you know, mm-hmm. for, for both genders. And I, I just uh, uh, wish they'd stick yeah. to their knitting. Understood. Well, I think young boys right now have a lot of challenges, unfortunately. And you know, it's, it's the it's the parenthood thing. I think you know, parenting. I think in my mind is one of the biggest challenges any of us face. And it's most critically need right now, needed right now and, and with young people, particularly in the, during the pandemic, I think. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Wendy? Well, I guess I've learned something in the past 40 years. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I would tell myself, tell my 25-year-old me to set distant goals earlier. I have had a tendency in my life to make the decision that's right in front of me, choose between A and B. And then when I get to the next crossroads, choose between C and D and the next and the next. 
looking back, I can trace a path. There's no question. But looking forward, I never could have traced it the way it's gone. So I would try to set goals earlier, which, by the way, I think men do better than women. I would tell myself to be bolder and not be afraid to fail early and then to learn from those failures. I would definitely tell myself to make relationships, make them lifelong relationships, nurture them. And then the other thing I would say is to prioritize. You said, which is most important to me, family, work, or giving back? Well, I think you need to prioritize very early because it helps you make decisions. If you have priorities, you can, your decisions are, are much clearer. Just like having life values makes decision-making easier. Did you advise your children that, that advice you just gave yourself? Oh, yes, definitely. And my children are so sick of my giving them life lessons. <laughs> I'm just constantly finding life lessons. I mean, I love sports metaphor for so any kind of, you know, sports metaphor I can find. I mean, I love the book Boys in the Boat, talking about all the guys having to exert to superhuman potential on an individual basis. And then on top of that, to coordinate with others and work with a team. Mm-hmm. I don't know a better book about business than that, frankly. I just think that's, that's an great. incredible sports metaphor. So yeah, I've definitely told my kids that. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Wendy? John, I think I'd go back to my E3. Be excellent. <laughs> engage. Have empathy. That's great. That's great. It's clear that you've given a lot of thought to that. And uh, you have rationale behind it, and it's it's great. And and you came up with it at least halfway into your career. It's not something you came up with as a young person. So it took time for you to develop that thought process. Yeah, I mean, I actually came up with it late in my career. I came up with it when I was at Morse Manning. I tried to, you know, have others adopted, but it wasn't a big sell, unfortunately. But um, I think those are good life values, just like, just like I thought. Respect, responsibility, honesty, and kindness were good. They both fit really well. Those are good good life goals. I'm sure you have some, John. I do, but we'll share those at another time. <laughs> I appreciate it. And thank you very much, Wendy, for joining oh, me today. Oh, come on, John. Okay, well, thank you very much again for inviting me. I hope you find something in all this time that's usable. But I appreciate well, very much the opportunity. It's been great. Thank you. Bye. So that's our interview with Wendy White. And now, as usual, I have my postscript with Tom Amos. Tom, thank you for joining me once again. What are your thoughts today? Hey, John. So here's what I got today. I, I, my favorite quote of the, the interview with Wendy was, people behave better in a mixed crowd. And I thought that captured your interview with her very well. I know that we're now playing around with our intro format and the possibility of, of adding that to the front of the podcast. And I think that that really captures well kind of the, the spirit of where we've been trying to go with this podcast and, you know, focus on kind of a more diverse business, and specifically with real estate. I really enjoyed, enjoyed that quote. Wendy's a special lady, and I've known that about her for a long period of time, and it hopefully came across in the interview. She has a perspective. She's very thoughtful about things, and she's just extraordinary in the holistic approach to the legal, legal profession. 
For the listeners, I also wanted to just talk a little bit and elaborate on Crew. You got you and Wendy talked about her involvement with that. And Crew or Commercial Real Estate Women is a, a network, you know, that their main focus is on achieving gender equality and, and a more diverse commercial real estate, going in line with that same sentiment. They have 12,000 members globally. And so for listeners, if, if they have an interest in, in joining an organization, that could be a great one for them to get involved. Crew's been around as long as I've been in the industry for over 40 years at least. And I remember when I first joined Prudential back in 1979, there was a lady, there were two ladies in my shop, and they had talked about Crew then. And this was in Detroit, Michigan, in the Detroit area. Yeah. I said, really? Because the odds for women at that time were much, much slimmer, probably less than 10%, if not even 5% of the industry in real commercial real estate at that time were women. Yeah. A few brokers, a few investment professionals, and mostly people in the retail sector in leasing primarily were, were the ladies where ladies were at that time. And they've grown considerably, obviously, now. And the last thing I wanted to talk about them was we, we just got done last night with recording our first webinar. Uh, I thought it was a huge success, great participation, and the panelists that were on the webinar last night did a fantastic job. So, you know, we had we had five guests, four of which have previously recorded here on the podcast, and I thought that that set the bar really high for for future webinars that we plan on having. The highlight for me for the webinar last night was. I think that all of the panelists did a great job at challenging the listeners to make sure to focus on the human aspect of business. You know, these aren't just simply financial transactions that, that are going on and taking place. Several of the, the panelists talked about, you know, clients that had worked or, or tenants of theirs for their buildings that, you know, this is their livelihood and this is, this is who they are in a lot of ways. The personal touch and the importance of of recognizing it for that. And that's that's the most important part when it comes down to it. And I thought that that was a great message right now for all of us and thought there was a lot to gain from from listening to that webinar. Well, the entire industry changed as did, as, as did the rest of the planet changed in March of this year. Yeah. So, well, actually earlier for Asia, but for, the, for North America it was March this year and it had pervasive effects on every human being. So, you know, they're overlaying the real estate industry into it, which has significant impacts from it, obviously, from a business standpoint and a personal standpoint. And the entire way that society works could be affected by it. And, we, and it was interesting. Each of them personalized it in some respects, not just to, for themselves, but for their business and for their community they're serving. We talked about all a lot of different things and the compassion that they had for their clients, their tenants, and their people that work for them. And the way they expressed that compassion was poignant in some respects. I thought it hit home at a lot of points. Some yeah, insightful too. moments. And, you know, we, we had experts in, in office and retail and hospitality that, that have really been hit in a major way. And they got into a lot of the details on that and talked about kind of some of the, um, the difficulties here in the past nine months. And uh, I think generally 
you know, some of them pointed out that we still have some hurdles to get over, but but generally had a pretty positive outlook on the future and kind of some of the pent up, you know, consumerism that's out there that that once we, we get some, you know, vaccines out and some things like that, that they anticipate that numbers will come back in a strong way. So that was also good to hear. Well, they were discussing the millennial pent up demand. I think young people are just chafing at the bit right now to get back, <laughs> not only to employment, back to their jobs, to, to socialize, to do entertainment, to do the things that, you know, they grew up with. They want to do again. They want to be with their friends and hang out. And so I think that's why most of the guys last night are not, you know, they're older, my age, but they recognize that this is what human beings want to do. They want to they want to convene. And that's one of the questions I asked. I said, so we talk about the workplace, but what about leisure activity and getting together? And I brought that up and uh, yeah. everyone agreed that clearly that's why, even though it's a dark time right now for retail, I think as the pandemic subsides and people accept the, the vaccine and people feel comfortable convening again, there'll be this overwhelming demand coming out of it to do, get back together and do things again. The question is when? We couldn't really determine that. It could be the end of 21, it might be into 22 or even 23 when people are all comfortable enough to get together. So that's gonna be interesting to see. The one, the people that are the leading edge of that uh, will be interesting. Will that cause another you know, rise in, in the virus? Even if the vaccine is out, there are people that are resisting the vaccine. Right. Will that continue the, the threat of the virus even beyond that point? So, you know, as Tom Bazzuto said last night, he said, I, I, it's going to take quite a bit for me to go to a ball game again or go sit in a large crowd and listen to a concert or something. <laughs> I have to be pretty confident that there's not going to be an issue there, even with a vaccine. People have to, you know, certainly the people say it's 90, 95% that, you know, it's going to be effective. Well, that proves out over time. Right. There'll be some skepticism, I think. I think so, too. So we'll see. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people that I've talked with are pretty, you know, not skeptical, but apprehensive right now with the vaccine. And they, I think it's like, yeah, well, let's see where things go before maybe I'm comfortable getting it, and that, so to speak. But, you know, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that you don't necessarily need, you know, everybody to be vaccinated in order to have success, right? You, you just have to get that transmission rate below one, you know, and then, and then it takes longer, right? But you're working towards a solution and working towards having it under control. So, uh, one, of the speakers, one of the speakers brought up 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11. Now, I'm not saying it's the same type of situation. But, you know, the real estate industry just came out with all this, you know, terrorism insurance and all this event risk aspect and all the security concerns that we have, of course, at airports and in buildings and everything to avoid terrorism at the time. So the terrorist now is something that's microscopic. <laughs> so how do you stop a microscopic terror event? You know, so Diane talked about the architectural things that they're thinking about, spacing, air quality, social interaction, all these things will 
you have to be thought through as regard to pro- property design, public space, you know, at, uh, separation, all those things have to be thought through because, you know, who knows what viruses are out there in the future yeah. that we haven't come across that, you know, right. I mean, the and you, you potential is react much differently yeah. the next time that, you know, in the past when SARS happens or, or, you know, swine flu or something, you imagine if that happened now that the reaction might be a little bit different. Well, if you read human history and going back, I'm talking thousands of years, things seem to happen over and over again. (laughs) People's mind are one or two generations back and beyond that, Mm -hmm. they don't think about it, unfortunately. So we keep relearning the same lessons over and over again as a species. Hopefully we'll be able to ingrain some things that become a little bit longer serving. Resiliency is going to be the key, I think, for, for us going forward for quite some time. So, Like I said, the first webinar was a huge success. I, I hope that the listeners really enjoyed that. I'm sure they did. And I'd encourage the listeners of the podcast to keep their eye out for future webinars. This is something that I think we're, we're working towards trying to do regularly. And uh, if you guys are on our mailing list, you'll be getting notifications about that. Hopefully we got, you know, I think you've set the bar high here for this first one, John, and uh, I'm looking forward to future ones. Yes. We're mulling a few ideas, but one is maybe to do a membership type of approach to, uh, you know, either premier podcast episodes, webinars periodically, perhaps a newsletter, perhaps blog posts that are unique and different. And to get some participation with the members too, some interaction, some interplay and involvement. So all those ideas I'm putting out there and we're going to encourage people to, to respond and give us some feedback and we'll come out with something hopefully in the next 30 to 60 days. All right, John, that's all I got today. Great. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. And thank you listeners for listening to, uh, what I thought was an excellent discussion with, uh, with Wendy White. And on to the next one, uh, just to give you a heads up, my next interview uh, will be with uh, Dan Matthews of uh, GSA, who is, will be leaving uh, office at the end of the current administration. Dan has a very interesting perspective I think you will, uh, you will enjoy. And thank you for listening.